Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio. Up to episode 19 today, but 20 episodes in total. Today I am joined by Daniel Bonner. Daniel is a clinical psychologist and master's graduate of the World Class Insomnia Research Group at Flinders University in South Australia. Daniel currently works as a clinical psychologist, treating children, adolescents and adults with sleep disorders at Jeffrey and Ree Clinical Psychologist here in Perth, Western Australia. Now the reason I had Dan on the episode today was not to talk about research in children or even adolescents, but was around his recent publication in Sports Medicine, which is currently the top ranked uh, sports journal in the world, where Daniel had a paper titled Sleep Interventions Designed to Improve Athletic Performance and Recovery, a Systematic Review of Current Approaches. And uh, Daniel really has a, a great understanding and appreciation of the current literature out there on um, sleep interventions for athletes and surprisingly there isn't that many um, so which we discussed in this episode. Daniel's also uh, published in areas around caffeine um, school-based interventions for adolescents as well and um, also in the, in the space of memory and recall. So hope you enjoy this episode and uh, let's get into it. Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio. Today I'm joined by Daniel. Daniel, how do you pronounce your last name? Because I don't want to get this wrong. Yeah, sure, it's, it's Bonner. Bonner. Right, so there'd be... Bonner was a very famous name in Ireland in 1990. Ireland, for the very first time, got into the Soccer World Cup. And I'm not a soccer fan, but I was that year. And the goalkeeper was called Packy Bonner. Okay. Who became a very famous goalkeeper in Ireland because... Uh, I think he blocked the penalty from Romania in overtime, and then we got into the quarterfinals against Italy, but we lost then to a guy called Scalacci who scored a goal. So, by any chance, are you related to Packy Bonner from Ireland? Well, you know, I'm going to say that I am. <laughs> um, I've got no idea, but I'll claim that, sure. Right, so he stopped the Romanians going through, so you might, might get in trouble for Romania. Yeah. <laughs> my, my soccer history could be wrong. But anyway, not to worry. Um, so, Daniel joins us today. Um, Daniel is uh, based here in Perth in Western Australia and I met Daniel recently through some work that Daniel has done that was published in Sports Medicine which um, basically talks about sleep interventions and hygiene for um, sleep hygiene for athletes not hygiene for athletes um, so yeah uh, Daniel and I have got a lot in common around the sleep world and improvement mm-hmm. so I thought I'd have Daniel uh, onto the podcast there to speak about a little bit about his work and also probably his clinical practice um, so yeah Daniel you're very welcome yeah, listen, thank you for, for having me today. Daniel, can you just give our listeners a bit of a background um, on yourself, the type of work that you do, mm. and maybe some of the educational background that kind of got you to this position? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I'm from South Australia originally, um, and I did my honours in psychology at Flinders University um, in to be honest, a completely unrelated area to, to sleep. So it was actually in spatial memory. Um, and then when I went on to complete my master's, um, which is sort of the postgraduate component, uh, sort of on your journey to become a psychologist, um, that was when I sort of, I suppose, uh, delved into the the sleep world. My supervisor, um, Professor Michael Gradazar, did a lot of paediatric sleep. Um, and uh, that's where my sort of passion, I suppose, started to, to develop. Um, and I also did some adult work with um, uh, Professor Leon Lack as well, who's quite a quite a big name in the in the field. So that was sort of where I suppose my development as a psychologist, you know, with a particular interest in sleep, 
came from. Um, and then since moving over to WA, um, I've worked uh, for uh, Melissa Ree and uh, Paul Jeffrey, and they both um, do a lot of work in sleep as well. So I've sort of, I suppose, continued my my sort of development, um, you know, under their sort of tutelage. Go ahead. No, no, that was all, that was all I was going to say. I think, yes. <laughs> We're staring at each other's eyes here, waiting for somebody to say something. So, to say something. Um, so very interesting background, Daniel. And obviously, um, in the sleep world, people come from many different backgrounds, yeah, you know, yeah. which we've seen on this podcast, and people come in from different angles. Um, what was it that got you interested in sleep? Um, was it was it a particular issue? Was it a project? Was it just kind of really funky to learn about at a uni? What kind of got you interested in that initially? Well, I suppose it was a combination of things. I mean, you know, I sort of, I suppose, you know, walked into it not knowing too much about sleep. You know, when you do uh, your master's in psychology, you have to complete a thesis. Um, and so I was doing sort of two projects. One was with um, adolescents um, doing a sort of a school-based sleep intervention. And the other one was a literature review around caffeine use in, in adolescents as well. And so I suppose it was, um, you know, through my um, research into those two topics that I started to, to sort of develop an interest. And then um, Michael, my supervisor, is, he was an absolutely brilliant supervisor. And uh, his passion, I think, very much sort of rubbed off of me as well. Um, and, you know, from there, I suppose, I think in some circles, you know, clinically speaking, maybe sleep isn't recognised by by all psychologists as being something important to actually tackle, um, clinically speaking. And um, you know, I you know, I suppose uh, see it completely differently. You know, I, could, I sort of you can um, you know when you actually talk to people in depth about you know sleep problems that they might be experiencing, and you sort of see the level of the impact on their lives, um, and being able to sort of I suppose make a difference you know in that space um, can be quite I suppose rewarding. Um, and so I suppose that just sort of you know, um, validates <laughs> um, you know the, the interest and the passion and the work that you sort of put into your into your clinical work. Yeah, I remember a few years ago having a conversation with a guy who was an occupational physician. So obviously you become a doctor and then you go into a speciality, yeah. whether it be sleep and respiratory mm. or occupational physician or whatever it might be. And he was saying, like when he did his undergraduate degree in medicine, it's very interesting. He said, you spend about maybe, you know, a day or two on nutrition. Mm. He said he think he's, he thinks he got like four hours on sleep. <laughs> but he goes, the, yeah. then when you go into the general practice or when you're meeting with people or, or patients, is that like 80% of the problems being mm. presented are related yeah. to sleep and nutrition. Mm. People are like, you know, I can't sleep, my diet's crap, yep. stressed at work. There's all these things that, you know, we don't really probably give enough attention to in our life, but seems to be a massive problem. Now, in your work as a clinical psychologist, how many people, because you see people from a broad range of mm. backgrounds mm. and industries and environments, whatever it might Absolutely, be, yeah. what percentage of those people do you find come to you with a sleep-related issue or sleep may be a contributing factor? Well, I suppose my, you know, my perception is probably um, a little bit biased here because one of one of my sort of workplaces focuses specifically on sleep. So people, you know, come to us for sleep issues. So there's, there's, I suppose, that bias. But, you know, um, you know, out, outside of that, you know, I would say it's a, a huge proportion of people, you know, who, you know, might come for another issue, um, you know, which they might sort of, you know, um, be their number one priority, but 
as you were just sort of suggesting, you know, sleep being either a sort of contributing factor or perhaps a maintaining factor for, for that issue as well. You know, there's a huge, there's an incredibly strong link between sleep and other mental health issues. Um, and so often, you know, it's in the mix there somewhere, not always, but, but often. Yeah, I think the, the sort of the interdependent relationship with sleep and mental health is definitely uh, a factor that I think many probably industries and even companies overlook. And I don't know if you know, recently, I think actually just this week here in Western Australia, the Department of, I want to say Mines and Petroleum, around their safety uh, division, released um, a draft quota practice for mental health and well-being around FIFO workers for comment by April. So it's quite quite interesting that you know we're starting to see that now take off by industry groups or regulators or even companies being interested in it, looking at this holistic solution. And I we've had this conversation on the podcast before with other people, and I've had it as well. When people have all these kind of issues around sleep, diet, you know, nutrition, not feeling great, maybe mental health is compromised. It doesn't really matter. I think sometimes where you make the intervention. Once you start making intervention, because you have this interdependent relationship, so if people sleep better. They feel better if they feel better the exercise if the exercise yeah. they lose some weight mm-hmm. if they lose some weight they might reduce the sleep related breathing disorder that's you know due to excessive weight yeah. then the sleep improves and it's just this kind of so as vicious as a cycle can go down or downward spiral it can be equally as quick and accelerating out of that to reverse um, it to reverse absolutely it, yeah. to reverse what, it. what's your thoughts on that sort of thing Oh, you know, in terms of reversing that sort of cycle, listen, I mean, exactly what you just sort of said, you know, sometimes it's it's kind of a, um, you know, sort of chicken or the egg type of conversation, you know, it's when it comes to sleep and mental health, for example, you know, so, you know, sometimes, you know, um, there might be a sleep issue to begin with, and that might sort of precipitate other mental health issues. Um, You know, for example, a lot of research shows that, you know, a sleep disturbance can be a a bit of a precursor for depression, for example, Um, either new onset or sort of recurrent uh, depressive episode. You know, equally so, if someone is experiencing depression, for example, you know, uh, I think the percent is a huge percentage, you know, 50 or 60 percent, I believe, of people, um, you know, might sort of report, you know, early morning awakening or other some other sort of insomnia symptom, right? And then, of course, you know, as you were just saying, it's a bi-directional relationship. Mm-hmm. So they sort of, um, they can make each other worse. And often if you improve one, you improve the other. Um, and of course, you know, that feeds into multiple other domains of life as well. Like you're sort of saying, you know, diet and, and other might maybe medical issue or mental health issues as well. Yeah. And it's probably worth like when we say insomnia, it's probably worth classifying or clarifying that there's three types of insomnia classically about like sleep onset insomnia. So the inability to fall asleep, yeah. then there's that, um, um, maintenance of sleep so fragmentation or waking up throughout the night which we often refer to as wake after sleep onset or that inability to mm-hmm. maintain that sleep period and then there's exactly what you said is the early morning mm-hmm. uh, awakening um, before you know you get up so you're waking up at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning is there any one of those types of different insomnias that are classically associated with a particular stress so you know is it more people who are depressed to wake up early at 3 o'clock in the morning is it more people that are bipolar have trouble falling asleep so is there any correlation between those types of in- and sleep and so- and, um, sleep and it's just something that came to me as we're talking is there any sort of kind of correlation causation relationship between those or are we just starting to write a new study here daniel <laughs> you know Ian, you know the the the, uh, the honest answer to that question is i'm not sure um, you know, I, I'm not familiar with any research, which is, I yeah. suppose, looked at that d- sort of direct correlation between particular types of insomnia. And I, I would say as well, I mean, the the latest edition um, of the International Classification of Sleep Disorders um, doesn't necessarily make 
or put much emphasis on the distinction between the different types of ways that people can experience yeah, yeah. insomnia and they sort of just refer to it these days as sort of primary insomnia disorder which just encapsulates basically you know everything that you were just sort of describing in terms of you know sleep onset or wake after sleep onset yeah. or early morning awakening yeah. So I'm sorry. That's the, that, that's the answer to that question. I'm not quite sure. We're currently looking for funding for that study. <laughs> if anybody would like to send us in dollars, uh, we'll take any amount in excess of twenty grand. Um, so Daniel, recently you've had this great review article published in Sports Medicine, which is the top sports journal based upon impact factor in the world at the moment, and it's titled Sleep Interventions Designed to Improve Athletic Performance and Recovery: A Systematic Review of Current Approaches. Mm. Whew. It's a massive title. Can you? It is a long, it's a long title. Yeah. It sounds very good and very clever. Um, can you give us um, a quick overview of what you were trying to do here? What were the aim of this review was? Because yeah. this wasn't an actual uh, an experiment, but more of a review of what was out yeah. there. Can you just tell us about what that review aimed to do and what is a systematic review compared to just a normal lit review? Sure. Yeah, it's, it is quite a fancy title, isn't it? <laughs> it's very fancy, yeah. I, I'm quite jealous. I got title envy here. And, you know, I, I can't actually claim credit for that title. It was actually Kristen Lang, um, one of my co-authors, who came up with that title. So I've got to give her the credit there. But basically, I mean, I'll give you, I suppose, a little bit of background in terms of, I suppose, you know where the idea sort of came from first and then maybe talk a little bit about you know what we were trying to sort of aim for just to put it in context so back in i think it was 2015 it's going back a a little while now i was sort of um uh, talking to a talking to a a waffle footy club i I won't say who but um about just doing now we have some people here who listen to the podcast (laughs) internationally even in places like canada What's a waffle? Because they're going to think that's like, oh, a waffle with syrup? Yeah. What's a waffle, please, Daniel? Yeah, yeah. No, good, good clarification, I think, yeah, Ian. I was talking too liberally, wasn't I? No, so waffle being sort of the Western Australian Football League, so Australian rules football, which... Um, so not a syrup on b- that. But b- perhaps, perhaps our international <laughs> listeners wouldn't have a clue what Aussie rules football is, but... I think we only have two international listeners, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so I was working, um, or sort of talking to one of those footy clubs anyway, and... Um, and we were, you know, in amongst our discussions, we were talking about sleep and potentially doing some some stuff with the athletes about sleep. And, and you know, I suppose, you know, being a, um, you know, being a, what's the word I'm searching for here, in a, a, a responsible clinician and researcher, I went to the literature to sort of say, well, yeah. what, you know, what's available to sort of, you know, in, inform, you know, the approach that I should be taking with these with these athletes. And and I suppose what I what I didn't find actually more than what I found was a complete lack of um, consolidated research you know um, that you might sort of see in a review for example like so there were some studies available and um, at that point in time in in 2015 there weren't that many studies right there were a couple but not many Um, and I suppose two two of them I suppose the major flaws that I found with the studies that were available were uh, one was that they didn't all use athletes but they made sort of inferences to athletes um, you know which I suppose you know has some sort of generalizability um, methodological issues associated with that um, and the the other um, was that you know often they might look at sleep but they didn't necessarily look at subsequent performance and recovery outcomes which one once again sort of limits generalizability and um, and usefulness for, for, for those sort of um, studies so I suppose you know my thoughts at that point were, you know, um, you know, there's a there's a um, a gap here in in the in the literature which 
I think should be addressed um, for both researchers but also for people you know working with athletes um, to try and give them some sort of useful consolidated information about the best approaches to sort of take with athletes. So I approached some sort of colleagues of mine uh, who I study with and sort of um, explained the idea and they were sort of keen to get on board and um, three of us uh, were uh, psychologists and one of us was a um, Kristen Lang is actually from Germany and she's a sports scientist so it was great to have her on board as well and from there we sort of developed the idea right let's do a, a literature review so basically scouring the literature for, for every type of relevant study that we could find um, and then sort of collate that information um, and and critique it to sort of see you know well you know what's the literature literature sort of literature saying I should say um, and you know what do we still need to to learn more about and so a systematic literature review is is just the way that you go about doing a literature review um, so it's the I suppose the, 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 the most stringent and highest level um, way of, of um, analyzing information from the literature okay so a systematic review will be you search through PubMed Google Scholar and maybe a university database. You search those three databases for keywords like sleep, intervention, athletes. You get 15,000 results. Then you narrow it down with maybe more words or maybe in the last five years as opposed to everyone that's been published, you get down to 500 papers. Mm-hmm. And then you have this tedious process of going through and seeing which is relevant and which isn't. And you might be left then with 50 papers. And then that 50 papers then is part of your, that's part of your systematic review going forward. Is that correct? Yeah, listen, I mean, um, that's that's right. So you have your inclusion criteria, you know, so things that the study has to um, have to be included. And then you have yeah. the exclusion criteria, which, you know, the study can't have, basically. Um, and I suppose two of our uh, key inclusion criteria, which, which in my opinion is one of the, the strengths of, of the paper that we, we did, was one, it had to include athletes. So we, we excluded all studies that didn't use athletes. Now, could you use amateur athletes? Yeah, we, yeah. we, we had to be somewhat inclusive here because, yeah. of course, if you only use studies with elite athletes, there would have probably been about three. <laughs> so, so we had to have <laughs> more than that, um, but we didn't want to be overly inclusive and include um, um, non-athletes in you know, samples in, you know, uh, in our lit review. And the other one was that they had to both uh, try and improve sleep in an athlete sample and they had to uh, measure uh, performance and recovery outcomes as well so that was really important because we thought well you know there's you know it's lovely you know to to have a study which might sort of you know show improvements to sleep but we want to see well what's the flow on effect for performance and recovery because we think that's very informative as well so those were the two sort of key inclusion criteria for our study um, and using that those selection criteria and going through the process that you sort of just described before, which is, I have to say, very tedious <laughs> and very long, um, we found 10 studies, So, which, which is not a huge amount. Yeah, and that's one of the things I wanted to draw attention to, and people would probably go on, 10 studies? And this is one of the reasons, or one of my kind of, uh, around the same time that you started looking at this was around the time I started my PhD, um, and this is one of the things that I was completely shocked about even before I got into it. And I think a lot of people are shocked. Is like, and I look at your systematic review here, and it's like 1,438 to start with. Then you get down to 591. Then you get down to 32. And you eventually end up with 10 articles. Now, people are sitting at home going, sport is a multi-million dollar industry. 
or maybe even billion dollar industry in the stayheads. And you're telling me there's 10 papers out there and improving athletes sleep? Now, if I was sitting on the couch listening to this podcast, I'd be like, you're a bunch of liars. Or you're, or you don't know what you're talking about. Surely there has to be more. And I've actually encountered this with submitting papers for review. I get comments back from authors, sorry, reviewers, as an author. And it'll say, surely there must be more. It's like, no, there's not. That's what's out there. You know, and if you get if you actually broke this down, because you got ten papers here, if you broke this down to like let's say football sports or team based sports and individuals, it will get less and less. Now, over the last two or three years there has been, you know, this kind of massive ramp up on lots of research by different people. Myself, Hugh Fulliger, Madison Jones, um, the guys at the IS, um, with Nathan Versi, Shona Haltz, and these guys have all been involved, and many, many more. Michael Estella, our South Australia, and, and many more I probably can't even remember off the top of my head. But there's a massive increase of people. Um, you know, Nate Pitchford, another one at the Western Bulldogs, lots of stuff coming through, which is great. So this systematic review in five years' time might be very different, mm. but when you did this, this was all that was out there. Were you shocked to have a, that there was so little out there for, you know, athletes? that were participating at a high level, were you guys really shocked at this yourselves internally as a, as a research team? Oh, absolutely, you know. Um, like I said, there has been a huge wave of, of research, you know, a huge surge, um, which I think just probably reflects that, you know, people are recognising more and more that this is actually a very important variable to consider, you know, you know, um, with elite athletes and, and their performance and recovery. And, you know, in, in terms of, of the studies that we did find that those 10, you know, certainly there are more studies out there, but not ones that met our inclusion criteria. So there certainly are more studies out there that look at sleep interventions, but they might not necessarily have looked at performance and recovery outcomes as well. So, yeah, they, yeah, so yeah. they were excluded. You know, and there might have been other studies. There are some uh, quite other well-known studies which we didn't include, but are actually quite well cited in the literature because they didn't use, use athletes. So, um, you know, there are more studies out there, but just not ones that we felt were... <laughs> that we sort of felt were informative enough to include. We really, one of the, the big aims of our study was to, to you know, uh, if, 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 a, um, if a coach or, or a staff member from a, from a um, club, you know, or a, working with athletes looked at our paper, would it inform them, you know, um, uh, of the, the most well-researched, well-validated approaches currently examined so far? So that's what we were trying to do. So, getting down to the point at the end of the question, what did you find? What is the best things to do as sleep interventions or sleep hygiene? What is the best things for coaches and athletes to do? Or is that a two-part question, coaches first and athletes? Or how would you approach that? Yeah, you know, <laughs> a really interesting question, Ian, right? Because I think it is a two-part question. And we identified, and you know, other people have done this as well, so we're certainly not the first to say this, but we very much think that it's important to include coaches in the processes with athletes yeah. okay because of course they play such a big part in determining well what are athletes doing you know what are the recommendations they're making are they on board with the with the changes that the athletes are going through if they're not you know that's a problem so we we certainly advocate for coaching staff to be involved in the process and to have a real understanding about you know what the exact changes that you know might be suggested are and, and the rationale behind them in terms of I suppose you know for athletes specifically we we sort of found that there were, broadly speaking, three different types of, of strategies um, in the literature, um, from a psychological perspective anyway. 
decided. Right. So if you're an athlete, this is the part you have to listen to. <laughs> this is the part you have to sit up and go, right, I'm going to listen. If there's three things I'm going to take out of this, this, this is what they're going to be. This is where I charge a premium, <laughs> if I was clever. <laughs> so so we, we identified that one of them was sleep extension, okay? Now, that can be achieved in two different ways. You can think about it in terms of total sleep duration, which includes napping and sleep at night, um, or, you know, it can be targeted napping only, right? So there are two different types of sleep extension there. Um, we also found that um, uh, there was obviously sleep hygiene studies as well. Um, they There were, I think, uh, three of those. Um, so they were one of the more prevalent ones. Um, and then um, re- we also looked at recovery strategies which affect sleep as a consequence of the recovery strategy. Okay, um, So things like cryostimulation um, and, and stuff like that. Um, and so, so those were, the, broadly speaking, the three categories that we, we looked at. Right, so with those three categories, I want to just stop here for a minute because I want to go into these a little bit in more detail. The first one, sleep extension, which you're saying could be a combination of increasing like your time in bed from eight hours to 10 hours to 12 hours to 14 hours. And the other one is the combination of the sleep duration and the napping. What's the best combo? So what gives you your best bang for your buck? Is it staying in bed for like 10 hours and trying to sleep for 10 hours? Is it best to get eight hours and have a nap in the day? Or what's the kind of, what's the variables you consider in that? In that? That's a really complex question. <laughs> I know, but you were looking at me, so I thought I'd ask you. <laughs> so, so basically, keep in mind, right, that when it comes to the napping um, literature with athletes, it is very limited, mm. right? Um, you know, the, the two... The two studies that we sort of found with total um, total sleep duration, so sleep extension via napping and sleep at night, they found some some really good outcomes, you know, um, in terms of you know cognitive and physical performance, especially cognitive performance. So there's a really probably the most well cited study was by um, uh, Ma et al. Um, I can't remember the rest of the of the authors on that paper, but basically they Sherry Sherry might might. M-A-H? Is it M-A-H? Is that how I think it's my. She probably, I hope she's listening. She's at Stanford. She's doing a lot. Of, yeah, I've, I spoke to Sherry before. She's got that classic paper on sleep extension yeah, yeah, yeah. with the basketball athletes. And, yeah, and basketball. yeah, yeah, it's very, yeah, it's a yeah. very interesting paper. So I think uh, Bill Dement was on that, who's um, yep. like the, people often refer to him as the, the grandfather of sleep medicine. So he was around when they discovered REM stages and all that sort of stuff back in the early 60s, late 50s. Um, yeah, so she's at Stanford. Uh, I believe she's medical doctor now or training to be a medical doctor it's been a while since I spoke to her but yeah that's a classic study very good person to follow on Twitter mm. um, yeah she's been I think she's been doing some stuff with Winter Olympians at the moment so uh, showing some good stuff there as well so yeah that's, that's an excellent paper and that's freely available um, so I might put that in the show notes it's about sleep extension for athletes yeah um Thanks for um, correct me on the pronunciation of the. I could be I could be wrong. I could I could be wrong. <laughs> Don't listen to me. <laughs> but uh, you're right. It is a really really well cited study. I think it was the first study of its kind. So, um, you know, it's it's you know um, well cited in the literature, and yeah, they looked at sort of total sleep duration. So they encouraged napping, um, and they also gave athletes um, a, a sort of set time in bed of ten hours, which is pretty lengthy you know 10 hours is is quite a long time in bed at night um now they found you know um huge improvements in in a range of sort of performance measures um you know sprint time shooting accuracy reaction time quite a few and they if i remember correctly um 
oh, I can't remember how many athletes. So it was amongst basketball players. I think probably one of the other key things to know about that particular study was that um, it it included sleep deprived athletes. Okay. Now I, th- I think that's quite an important thing to consider because. You know, we're not talking about well-rested athletes here. You know, we were talking about sleep-deprived athletes. So athletes who needed more sleep, okay? So, you know, you were getting measurements when they were sleep-deprived versus when they were getting much more sleep and, and much more well-rested. So, um, you know, not, you know, all studies will include athletes, I suppose, who, you know, who are sleep-deprived. So there was another study from South Australia that we included. Um, I can't remember the name of the authors, but... They, they were looking at um, Aussie Rules footy players um, and at baseline, you know, they were more well rested. So the improvements in their sleep were, were smaller than the, um, the study by... So can, you, can you say the name again for me, Ian? What was it? I think it's Sherry Mai. 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 I, think, I think I could be wrong. Yeah. Now, now you have me thinking, I could be wrong. <laughs> Just could be cursing me at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, and they got, you know, smaller sleep improvements and no subsequent performance benefits, right? And so I suppose the question is, you know, did they get no performance benefits because they were already well rested? So you need to, I suppose, consider, you know, well, where are you starting from and how much extra sleep does somebody need and does that extra sleep actually translate into benefits in terms of performance or recovery? And that's a classic thing there as well is does the sleep extension actually affect the performance? And when you look at the literature, um, not in the approach that you did, but from just a general viewpoint if you start looking at endurance sports military um shift workers it's it's quite variable and so cognitive performance can be affected but then individual variability physical performance in adventure racing may not be affected for three or four days and then you've got like the breakdown of physical performance anaerobic versus strength aerobic so how do you how do you quantify those how good is the person at the sport how long have they been doing it how much do they recall do how much is just like kind of memory based you know skill how much is just like you know auto so it's it's, it's difficult you know to kind of find and that's why the the sherry my study is so good because they had things like the pvt mm. the psychovigilance motor test um which measures reaction time you have they had free throws from the three-point line they had sprint you know so kind of fairly standardized tests that people could do and you could repeat them fairly easily so you had those repeated measures in the study and you could like you said before and after the sleep intervention they could really clearly see the effect on performance but when you start getting into team-based sports afl or rugby where the strategy might be different because the type of game trying to correlate the performance of a player with the sleep is very difficult and because every game strategy could be different they could be getting different um instructions from the coach where in individual sports where it's distance or time it's a little bit easier to start looking at what goes on so a run for example Mm. a 10k run you can kind of say do i sleep deprive somebody and see what happens but then again um if the person or the athlete's very good at that sport and they've been running for 20 years can they just really kind of blast themselves for that you know 45 minutes whatever it might be to get that pb or to maintain that time you know so it's quite it's quite different and we see this a lot in special forces and military as well people do extraordinary things with extreme sleep deprivation mm. that wouldn't classically meet so yeah there's i'm probably trying out too many things out here but it's just really interesting when you when you start looking at these kind of strategies and how they affect people there's so much variability with yeah. people yeah no it, it just reflects the the how complicated <laughs> yeah. it, it really is yeah. you know um for example um with the 
with the oh sorry Ian I've just lost my train of thought actually uh, with the what study was it actually let me have, let me have a second Ian to remember what I was actually going to say then because I've just I've just forgotten what I was about we're, to say. we're going to take a quick commercial break <laughs> Take as much time as you want, we just added it out. What was I thinking? Um, because of the three things we're talking about, sleep extension and napping, then the second oh, point. Oh, the, compl- the complicated nature of, yeah, sorry, I remember what I was going to say now, yeah. So, so the, the, I suppose, you know, one thing to take into account, because I, d- I don't want to give the impression that, you know, people should be spending really long periods of time in, in bed trying to catch as much sleep as possible. Because, of course, you know, if we think about clinical sleep disorders, you know, we know that uh, with, with insomnia, for example, you know, often people, uh, in, you know, in a response uh, to not getting enough sleep or missing out on sleep, they try and catch more sleep by spending more time in bed. Unfortunately, by spending more time in bed, they're only reinforcing that negative association between not sleeping and, and being in bed. So... You know, it's, it's a real balance, you know. Um, and so I, I just wanted to just mention, I suppose, I, d- I don't want anyone to sort of walk away thinking, right, I need to spend 10 hours in bed. You know, it very much comes down to individual sleep need. You know, you can only get as much sleep as, as you need, and that differs um, uh, between individuals. Yeah. Um, yeah, and this is something we spoke about before, I think, in the podcast with other people as well, is, well, how much sleep do I need? Mm-hmm. One of the best ways of doing it is probably if you go on holidays without the imposition of an alarm clock or a work schedule, what time do you normally want to go to bed? What time do you normally fall asleep? Without the stimulation of a nightclub, drinks, TV, yeah. you know, yeah. a dancing band, whatever's going on. <laughs> Without that stimulation, what time would you normally go to bed and what time would you normally wake up at? And that's probably, if you can maintain that for two or three days, yeah. that's probably a fair indication of how much sleep you need. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, if people can afford to do that with time-wise, that's a really good way to kind of assess your sleep schedule and what, what, what's required. Yeah, it's a good measuring stick, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's really, you know, I suppose probably one of the easiest ways to determine well how much sleep do you actually need? Because I mean, that's often a question that I get from my clients. You know, well, how much sleep do I need? And I, you know, I sort of talk about well, you know, there might be an, an average range that people need. You know, so for you know a healthy sort of young to middle um, adult. Uh, middle uh, sort of adulthood you know might be that sort of seven to nine hour range but of course you know there are many people who know who need a bit more and there are of course people who need a bit less as well so you know i think it's important to sort of consider these types of things when you know for example for an athlete you know you know what are you trying to achieve in terms of getting more sleep you know and not setting yourself unrealistic expectations which you can't actually meet um, and then perhaps even getting stressed about that. So, yeah, I think that's an important point to sort of take away from sleep extension. Yes, it's good to get more sleep, probably as a general rule. Um, you know, how much sleep, extra sleep do you need? Well, that depends on the individual. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. So, Daniel, we spoke about sleep extension and sleep and napping as well. And we had three points. What was the second point again? What was the, so the three things we had coming out of your study, out of your review? Oh, the recovery strategies yeah. that affect sleep as a consequence? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, um, we, we included these because, well, we thought, well, why not? I mean, they do affect sleep, right? But because you're looking at two, two aspects to the study, so you're looking at the recovery strategy and you're looking at sleep as a consequence, and, of course, it's, it's a bit of a complicated relationship. So we... We included two studies. One was looking at cryostimulation, um, uh, following uh, a sort of intensive training period amongst swimmers, and the other one was with um, basketballers from, I think it was the Chinese 
National Army, I think. Is this the red light therapy? Yeah, the red yeah, light, yeah. the red light therapy. Yeah. Now we 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 included that <laughs> because technically speaking, it met our criteria. Um, you know, it included athletes and um, and it was a sleep intervention designed to improve sleep. However, we were very unsure <laughs> about the rationale and the conclusions that were drawn from that study, and, and we kind of made that, I think apparent in our sort of conclusions that we drew about that. I think I left that one out of my lit review. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, we 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 know we were compelled we were compelled to include it, but yeah. we were very cautious in our interpretations yeah, yeah. of that of that study. Yeah. So the first one the first one with the cryotherapy, this is interesting because obviously in the sports world, in the athletic world, sleep and recovery go hand in hand. And a lot of people will ask about cryotherapy versus ice baths and, you know, there's all this sort of discussion around what's good and what's bad. And I know about six months ago, I had a look at the cryotherapy and I spoke to some people as well who do a lot of recovery with elite athletes at the Olympic level. And the overall conclusion at the time was, well, cryotherapy, when you look at the studies overall, really didn't show any much more benefit than an ice bath for 20 minutes. Um bit like compression gear it shows perceived benefits but no actual objective yeah objective you know measures of um recovery and it's a bit like the compression gear it was a very interesting infograph i shared this week which is like people wear compression gear running compression gear is only made for is only designed for recovery not for performance while you're actually moving we'll say but also the only real benefit of uh performance was perceived okay so it's kind of interesting how things kind of get bastardized over time and get used or promoted mm. in different ways. So mm. what, the, what, what did you find with the cryotherapy and the effect on sleep, if any? Yeah, so I mean, so the, the one study that we looked at, um, and, you know, I should say, you know, I'm certainly no expert um, on cryotherapy, but, you know, what we, what we... Oh, don't worry, there's heaps of bro scientists out there that are experts <laughs> on cryotherapy that I'm sure to let me know. <laughs> <laughs> but what we did find was that, you know, in terms of sleep, it didn't improve sleep, but it preserved sleep. Okay, so so basically there was a control group and there was the intervention group. Um, the intervention group, um, their sleep sort of parameters, so you know how long it took to fall asleep, um, and uh, in terms of waking up and how much sleep they actually got, those those variables were sort of protected. Um, whereas the people in the control group, um, um, their sleep deteriorated after the intensive training that they completed with the with the swimming. Now, did the control group have ice baths or just nothing? Uh, they had no intervention. No intervention. Okay. Okay. So that's interesting because, um, and I'm not being critical of that study. That's a very, that's a, that's a very valuable study to show cryotherapy, as opposed to nothing is better for preserving sleep. But also as well, it'd be interesting to look at the cold water stuff. And I know uh, Alyssa Roby at UWA has done some work on cold water immersion, and basically found no real negative effects on sleep. Um, as did Nathan Versi do some stuff at the AIS. Um, you know in collaboration with other people as well and no real negative effect on sleep so it's good to show that cryotherapy as a recovery modality is not going to have a negative effect it's going to have a positive effect so that, that's quite good to know so um but in terms of recovery that's probably a separate question that, <laughs> may, that may, neither me and uh, neither yourself or i can answer in this podcast um but it's something i would like to delve into more because when i do look at the studies and i look at them from just a purely um, scientific perspective and looking reviewing the literature that's out there I'm not kind of convinced that it's any better than ice baths and uh, 
ice baths are a lot cheaper as well so <laughs> <laughs> so uh, compared to cryotherapy sessions so yeah quite, quite interesting is there any other rec- rec- any other recovery modalities that take place that do affect sleep negatively that you found in the review none that we found i mean you know we were very much i suppose focusing on those two yeah um so uh, not that i can not that i can sort of comment on i don't think okay and so um just coming up to the to the end and you're wrapping up is there any other um items that you found in the systematic review that would help um, athletes and i'm thinking about jet lag a lot of athletes either in the amateur field Mm. uh, travel a lot you know or you know you look at there's been some talk about the winter olympics at the moment in south korea people traveling actually did i hear correctly the other evening was it one of the swiss athletes cycle from switzerland to south korea I thought it was one of his, uh, an athlete's father, I thought. Wasn't an athlete, was it? Surely not. I don't know, maybe I got it wrong. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I'm sorry. I you see, someone's father, I, yeah. Maybe, maybe <laughs> I, I'd be half listening to it. Like the, the Winter Olympics on the background, be half listening. So, um, yeah, I could be wrong. There you go. Anyway, was there, <laughs> was there anything that you may have found around jet lag and, and intervention strategies around this? Because this comes up a lot at the elite levels with the yeah. teams, individuals. Um, highly trained amateur athletes people wanting to travel for an Ironman so what did you find around that as, as a kind of a final point yeah you know th- this is I think we, we could talk I think for a very long time about this end. Like, this is a big question I think and like you said you know it's um, it's a really common question um, you know amongst obviously just regular travellers um, you know business people politicians you know the military and of course you know in the context of what we're talking about elite athletes as well you know one study that we found um, looked at the combination of bright light therapy uh, and sleep hygiene, and they they found some some sort of minor improvements, nothing major. But as a general comment, um, I, I might talk a bit more broadly here. I think maybe just um, rather than specifically about athletes. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. Because I think there's a, there's a scarcity definitely with athlete, athletic groups. So yeah, talk talk as much as you want about other industries or groups. Just um, just in general, I mean. Uh, when you sort of look at trying to sort of mitigate the the negative effects um, of jet lag on, for example, you know performance or just how people feel in general, um, you know on a on a domestic level, so travelling, you know within Australia, um, you know one of the, I think the best ways to to get around jet lag is to actually try and adjust to the new time zone that you're actually travelling to. Okay, so it's almost like you're trying to, you're trying to prepare yourself by putting yourself in the time zone before you get there, so that when yeah, you yeah. do get there, you know you you just slot right in. So for example, you know if you know if you were travelling from from um, the west coast of Australia to the east coast of Australia, you know was, let's say, let's say somewhere like Melbourne, you know so Melbourne are you know three hours ahead of us. Okay, at the moment anyway, I think it goes down to about two and a half hours. Two two hours. Sorry, two hours. Yeah, two hours. Um, you're, t- you're getting mixed up with Adelaide there. Yeah, Adelaide. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, so you know, for example, if you were travelling from the west coast to the east coast, let's say to Melbourne, um, you know, what you would do is you would, you know, uh, in preparation for for going to Melbourne, you know, you would actually try and probably wake up a little bit earlier uh, each day, um, uh, in addition to using bright light therapy. And I, 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 once again, we could talk for a long time about this, but. Uh, and, and you would gradually move your wake-up time so that your wake-up time was consistent with, you know, um, the wake-up a wake-up time in Melbourne. So, for example, you know, if you were waking up here uh, at seven o'clock in in Perth and Western Australia, 
you know, um, um, you know, three hours earlier is when you know someone might be waking up. So you know, four a.m. Yeah, about four yeah, a.m. Yeah. So, for example, you know, if you started at seven o'clock and gradually woke up, let's say half an hour earlier each day, in addition to getting some bright light, you know, sunshine in the morning, and you actually started, you know, um, um, waking up at four o'clock. You know, when you fly to Melbourne, of course, you'll be waking up at seven o'clock there, which I suppose just takes that edge off that three-hour difference between you know Perth and, and Melbourne, for example. So, as a general rule, you know, if you can do that, um, domestically speaking, I think that's a, a really helpful way of, of trying to get around jet lag and just adjusting, you know, more effectively to the new time zone that you're in. Um, internationally, it gets way more complicated, yeah. um, and I. I you know, there's there's things that you could be doing pre-flight, in-flight, and probably post-flight to sort of maximise adjusting as quickly as possible um, to the new time zone that you might be in. Yeah, and I, I, you're right. This is a very um, heavy topic, and we had someone on episode four talking about jet lag and napping and so on. And also, I've spoken across different podcasts about some of the work that we've been doing. And then last year with Tim Smitty's, uh, who was doing his honours uh, project at UWA, we actually did that with the Western Force. We looked at them doing a global, a global uh, travel schedule. Yeah. So Australia to yeah. South Africa, then on to Argentina, and then back to Perth. So it was quite in a westerly direction. Um, so it was quite a, 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 a serious, significant kind of jet lag study that we undertook there, which we're currently trying to write up as a paper. Um, so on that, and exactly what you're saying as well is about the pre-flight schedule is interesting because I've had the upset happen this week. I just got back from Melbourne on Sunday. And so when I went over, I was quite, I got into the time zone quite quick. But when I came back, you know, sort of eight o'clock here at night, I'm like, I gotta go to bed. Cause my body's on like 11 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. But then we're waking up at like four, half four or five in the morning, trying to fall back asleep. And so we were only starting to get right, the, you know, the last day or two from coming back from that trip. So it works both ways but I do have to laugh when we talk in Australia about domestic travel being a five hour flight <laughs> because if you look at Europe like for me that's like Dublin to Moscow and we, we classify that as a long haul flight yeah. I think I think Dublin to Boston's like six and a half hours maybe so it's not that much further to go to to, to go to go to the US so when we talk about domestic in Australia I think we've, we we get a little bit blasé about you know how big this country is and uh, you know Long haul, yeah. yeah. Long haul. It's, it's, yeah, it would be classified as a long haul flight in, in other countries. Um, so, yeah. So, Daniel, um, a brilliant conversation today. I think we're going to have a few more of these going forward because there's, there's lots more that we can delve into. We just skimmed the top. Um, how can people find you if they want to talk to you more about, you know, sleep hygiene, sleep interventions? Obviously, there's your paper, which we'll put in the show notes, that big fancy title. We'll definitely put that in from sports medicine and people can go and get look at the abstract there or look at the paper there um, if people want to talk to you about maybe getting involved with their company to talk about sleep sleep education principles practices maybe working with a team working with athletes how can they get a hold of you and kind of what services do you offer yeah i mean so um you know people can sort of i suppose contact me on my email which i'm not sure if we can just even maybe put that somewhere we can put in the notes yeah yeah we can put in the notes sure um uh, alternatively they can you know they can give me a give us a call um so the uh, the business i work for is jeffrey and Reed clinical psychologist and we we specialize in, in sleep services so um you know either myself or someone else could be you know um, potentially very helpful in terms of offering services and in terms of I suppose the actual services that we we provide you know um, I suppose clinically speaking you know I, I do a lot of work with clinical sleep disorders like insomnia or circadian rhythm disorders 
Um, but you know, uh, in addition, you know, just like just like you, and I, I really enjoy sort of talking to athletes as well, um, and you know, and try and sort of enhance performance recovery outcomes through sleep. So, um, you know, that's another thing that I'm that I'm you know clearly uh, particularly interested in as well. So, basically, I suppose a range, you know, travel um, as well, trying to mitigate the effects like we were sort of talking about at the end there. So, a, a range, I think. Yeah, no worries. All right, we'll put your email, contact details, so on in the show notes. Maybe link to um, a link to a LinkedIn profile, any other social media handles that you have. We'll put those in there. And as always, guys, if you have any questions, uh, you got any feedback, just send it through to me at Ian Dunican at sleepforperformance.com.au. It's a very long email address. Um, but I'll put that in the show notes as always. And um, yeah, Daniel, thanks very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And I know lots of people will get a lot out of that conversation. Hey, listen, Ian, no, thank you very much for, for having me on. It's been great. Awesome. Thanks, Daniel.